The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Feel free to open up to Mark's Gospel. We're going to be in Mark chapter 11 and chapter 12. And as you're turning there, I wonder if you've ever taken time to consider what life is going to be like, what the experience will be when Jesus comes back. If you're new to Christianity, this might be news to you, but the Christian story says that one day Jesus is going to return and he will restore justice through judgment. It's a popular theme for movies, for books, for people to have conversations around what will this experience be like. And for a ton of people, whether they are new to Christianity or whether they feel like part of the furniture as well, they don't remember not being at church and Christian life is all a blur, a ton of people effectively find themselves asking this question. What is the baseline? What is it that Jesus is going to expect of me on that day where I too will face his judgment? And this is the question that we're going to be picking up on today as Jesus comes to proclaim himself as king of Jerusalem. Now, for those of you who are just joining in, church here at Life Center is exploring a theme through Mark's gospel, all the way up leading to Easter, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the series is called Jesus is King. Why did Kylam choose that? Well, because that's what Mark's gospel is all about, Jesus being proclaimed king. It's the story of how Jesus, the Son of God, the invisible God made visible, becomes king. And if you're anything like me, for our modern democratic ears, talk of a king and a kingdom can kind of seem a little bit strange, even archaic. And so the goal of this series is really to unpack over these series of weeks and passages why Jesus being king is really good news for you and for me. Now, we're going to cover quite a bit of territory this morning. I hope you've got your uh, ability to listen, play back at 1.5 speed, because that's just how my voice works. But we're going to go through three different comings of Jesus to Jerusalem successively. And the plan is to unpack how each of them together actually speaks to this broad question. What does Jesus expect of me? And as something of a special bonus, if you've ever been reading through the gospel stories and you've gotten to this little part about Jesus cursing the fig tree and you found it hard to figure it out, right? It's been a little bit confusing. That's three boys, dad jokes are totally allowed. We're going to dive in and hopefully unpack how this story fits into the whole. So that's coming. But let's start with the first entry, Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 11. Because the first time Jesus comes to Jerusalem, the people throw a party. In the Christian calendar, in our rhythms of worship, we call this the triumphal entry or celebrate it as Palm Sunday. It's what officially kicks off the Passion Week, the suffering of Jesus, what we celebrate around Easter. And the scene here is fascinating because in Mark's gospel, the whole thing has been leading to Jesus finally coming to Jerusalem. Jesus has been gathering a following, his spellbounding teaching, his ministry of miracles. People know who he is, and there is this question brewing, could he be the one? Again, if you're new to the Christian story, there was this expectation because of everything that came before Jesus in the Old Testament that one day a Messiah would appear, a king to liberate God's people, One from the genealogy of David, one who would ultimately deliver Israel, one who would crush the very head of evil. 
And as Jesus is approaching this grand city, it's swelled together with visitors for the Passover feast. It is full of people from out of town. Jesus actually leans in purposefully to this expectation. He performs what scholars call prophetic theater. He intentionally fulfills one of the prophecies of the Messiah. He sends his disciples to fulfill Zechariah 9.9, to bring him a donkey who had never been ridden on so that he can make his grand entrance. After 10 chapters in the Gospel of Mark, of doing what they call the messianic secret, of playing down his identity, Jesus finally sheds anonymity and he is ready to go public. The point being, Jesus is making the overt claim here to be this king. It's unmistakable. It's undeniable. And the reason why we need to highlight that is that there is a lot of people in our modern culture, skeptical thinkers and scholars, who will say that Jesus never really claimed to be king. He never really claimed to be the son of God. But yet it's not always with overt words, even though he does that. Often it is with these overt actions, where his actions speak louder than words. Now, as a fun little sidebar, I often have people also ask me the question, why believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be? And one of the things that this text gives us here is the idea that Jesus fulfilled prophecy, the fulfillment of messianic prophecy. Now, this is actually one of the biggest arguments that the Bible uses to prove the existence of God, to prove that God stands behind the writing of the Bible, that it has divine fingerprints, and to prove that Jesus was who he claimed to be, his fulfillment of messianic prophecy. It's an argument endorsed specifically by God in Isaiah 41, where he mocks the idols of the day and entices them to try and predict rightly the future, something only God can do. Or in Deuteronomy 18, we're told that you will know if a prophet really speaks from God if what they said comes true. Jesus himself uses this argument in John 13, where he says to his disciples, I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. The argument from prophecy. Because if true, this argument actually proves a ton. But this argument has fallen on hard times. Apart from a few pastors that make it at Christmas time, You often don't hear this being advanced, often because it's done poorly. And if you're going to make an argument, you need to do it carefully. You'll often hear this idea that Jesus fulfilled hundreds of prophecies. You know what? That's true. But if you want to convince someone who doesn't believe in God, doesn't believe in Jesus, well, just like this passage, they'll charge you of Jesus manipulating the data. Zechariah 9.9, riding into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey. This isn't exactly hard to fulfill if you intentionally set out to fulfill it, right? Jesus made it happen, big whoop. And when you start listing out all of those hundreds of prophecies, so many of them can either be manipulated or made up after the fact, shoehorned to fit the life of Jesus. If you're going to make a compelling case, you need to apply some good criteria that whittles down the list to about five or six really strong prophecies over which Jesus had no power and which evidentially make a very strong case. If you're interested in doing this, I've written a big paper on it. Come and speak to me afterwards and I can bore you off your socks. But it's important for us to realize Jesus makes a claim to be king and he backs it up with the evidence of his fulfillment of prophecy. But diving back to Jesus' triumphal entry, the whole thing really is an anticlimax. 
The crowds had laid down palm branches. They laid down their coats. They're proclaiming, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're kind of stoked because the expectation is now this Messiah has arrived. He's going to go straight into Jerusalem, walk straight up to the fort of Anatonius, the big Roman uh, kind of base there. He's going to get everyone to pick up swords and they're finally going to deliver the Jews from their Roman oppressors. But that's not what Jesus does. Instead, Jesus, the king of Jerusalem, he heads to the temple, the heart of the city, and he has a look around. He takes stock of what is happening in God's space. He inspects the situation, and then he leaves quietly. Now, what's this all about? Well, Jesus is making a point. He has a plan to deal with all the evil powers and institutions out there. But that's not why he came this time. He didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Because he's helping people come to terms with the fact that the dark powers that lurk within us are far more dangerous than any external oppressor. Jesus comes first as king of Jerusalem to inspect his own. And what was it that Jesus saw in those temple courts? Well, we find out in the next scene. But there is a challenge written in his triumphal entry. If Jesus came to inspect your life, what happens in the very heart of who you are? What would he see? In Jesus' second coming, Mark 11, 15 to 19, we have the scene of his cleansing of the temple. It's infamous because it takes the temperature up a few notches. It's kind of like the old Anchorman scene, if you remember seeing it, where there's a turf war with all the news teams and they're reflecting back on it and they're like, wow, things really got out of hand. Brick killed a guy. (laughs) And you have this sense that Jesus' disciples would have reflected back on this day with that same kind of feeling. Without any fanfare on day two, Jesus enters Jerusalem. He proceeds to the temple and he goes on a warpath. We're told in Mark's gospel that he flips over the tables of the greedy money changers that are fleecing God's people. And he chases away those who are selling merchandise right out of the temple precincts. Jesus is seeing the abuse of religion, people using it to further their own interests, and he goes off. We're actually told in a parallel story in the other gospels that Jesus had gone away to make a whip to be able to return and drive them out. Now, this isn't some spare-of-the-moment kind of flare of anger then. Jesus had come to see what was happening there the day before, and in a calculated and premeditated way, planned how he would deal with the evil at the heart of God's space. And so he goes away and he makes a whip. Yes, the emotion was there. We're told that zeal for his father's house consumed Jesus, but it was a calculated decision. Rather than mere words, Jesus demonstrates how God will deal with evil. Like with Adam and Eve being driven out of Eden for their sin. Like the tribes of the Canaanites being exiled from the promised land for their evil. Or even like God's people Israel themselves being disciplined for their idolatry and carried out of the promised land into Babylon. Here Jesus comes again to drive away evil from the heart of God's space. God's holiness and our sinfulness cannot abide together. 
The temple was meant to be a sacred place where people could come to draw near to God. But religion had become big business. Evil people feigning good for their own greed. And the bustle of these shady markets, it crowded out the business of true repentance and of faith. And those who were meant to protect the people, those who were meant to light the way to God, the religious elite, they stood by and watched as Jesus did what they should have done. They had let evil in and it had festered within the walls of the temple and they ignored it. Jesus never does. Nothing evil ever escapes his gaze and no darkness can hide from his light. There is no shadowy deed done in secret that will not be exposed. And so Jesus, the King of Jerusalem, on this day in God's house, he sends evil packing. And that opens another challenge to us. What are we ignoring? In our own lives, what are we pretending is okay? In the New Testament, we're told that no longer do we go to a building to worship, but that if you're a Christian, a follower of Jesus, you have become a temple for God's holy presence. Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. What is it that Jesus might want to drive out of our life? What greed, what envy, what lust, what sloth, what hidden sin is numbing our spiritual hungers and obscuring our sense of God? Because no good thing can come from letting it abide, from letting it fester. Our invitation, as always, is to come to Christ and have him drive it away. Jesus' third coming in Mark eleven twenty-seven to 12, 12, is where he comes as the king of Jerusalem to have a more dignified showdown, a more scholarly debate. He went blue collar on day two. Now he's going to go academic on day three. And having orchestrated his arrival so as to be welcomed as the Messiah, having taken up to confront greed and injustice in the temple courts, well, the, the Jewish religious leaders, they want to ask some serious questions of Jesus. What right do you have to do these things, Jesus? They ask him the question, by what authority do you do this? Now, if you're new to Christianity, this actually isn't a bad question. When it comes to the Christian story, when it comes to belief in God, questions are totally allowed. God is not afraid of your questions. Jesus welcomes doubters. Truth always invites questioning. And so you are welcome to ask away at the Christian story. I'll hang out around after, as will Kylam. If you've got barriers, questions, come and ask them. But know this. Everyone who questions God should remember that he reserves the right of reply. And God has questions of his own. You see, so often as you read these gospel stories, Jesus answers a question with a question. Why? Because questions open people up. Questions reveal what's going on beneath the surface, where someone is really coming from. And so Jesus replies to their question, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. And they were unwilling to answer him. Why? Because they feared the people. 
For them, however they answered, it was a lose-lose situation. And so they remained silent. They didn't want to lose face. Because the truth is, when it came to these religious leaders, they cared more about their own standing than standing on God's truth. And although Jesus refuses to answer cowardice explicitly, he goes on to tell a parable in chapter 12, what's known as the parable of the wicked tenants, where he makes his identity plain and he exposes their true motives. He says of himself that he is not just another servant that's been sent, that he really is the son who's been sent. He is the son of God, precisely as Mark opened his gospel with. Jesus is the rightful owner, the heir of the vineyard, Israel. Therefore, Jesus is owed something. Now, a lot of people in our culture have an objection to this notion, an objection to God having any authority over who they are, how they live, how things will play out. We don't owe God a thing. This is the heart of this question. By what authority do you do these things? Who are you to tell us what to do? And the Bible gives an answer to this question every time it comes up. God is our creator. He literally made everything. Time, space, matter, and energy come into existence by the power of his word. This thing doesn't like my big ears. Apologies. Not only did he make creation, but the Bible says that he made you and me. That we are knitted together by his hand in our mother's womb. That this is his intentional process. That beyond any earthly parents, a mum and a dad, we have a heavenly father who intended, predestined our existence and brought us into being. That will work. And even more so, not only did he create us, not only did he make us, not only does he know the number of hairs that are on our head, but he saved us. Jesus speaks about the willingness that he has to lay down his life for our own sake. I don't know what I've done here. What do you reckon? I think we're safe. Good. I'm expecting he's going to snap my head off in a second. Some cool kung fu move. Jesus has paid a heavy price to redeem you and to redeem me. The same one who breathed that life originally into our nostrils had that breath leave his own for our sake, for our sin. Our very breath is dependent upon God upholding this universe. And we would have the audacity to say to him, by what authority, what right? Who are you? Seriously? We cannot begin to imagine how much we are in debt to God. So when it came to what God expected in return, the religious leaders, they should have known. I mean, after all, these are the guys that are the heirs of Judaism. Theirs were the patriarchs. Theirs were the promises. Theirs were the covenants. Theirs were the blessings. Theirs were the scriptures. God had given them so much. God has given us so much. So what does Jesus expect? What does he expect. What is the whole point of these three comings? And this is where we get to our initial question. What does God, Jesus expect of you? At the second coming of Christ, what will he come looking for? 
a cross around your neck, attendance in church, a litany of religious achievements. No. The Bible's answer here is fruit. Jesus wants fruit. He's hungry for fruit. Now, what does this mean? Well, to answer this question, I want to zoom in on the parts that I skipped. One of the most confusing New Testament stories the first time you read it, the small little episode where Jesus curses a fig tree. Mark 11, 12 to 14 and 19 to 25. The disciples have been following Jesus for years. Picture it from their perspective. They've seen him restore withered hands. They've seen him multiply food to feed the hungry. They've seen him heal the sick and even reach down into death to pull loved ones back to life. In their experience thus far, in every situation where Jesus has gone, he has brought life. And now here, for the first time, they see him bring death. Jesus casts judgment on a tree. So what is up with this story? Why does Jesus curse a seemingly innocent fig tree? It's not one that the Greens would be very popular with. Well, the answer to this question actually covers everything in the three stories we've looked at today. We pick up the story in Mark 11, 12 to 14. Right before Jesus' cleansing of the temple, he's probably armed with the whip. We're told that Jesus was hungry. Now, I actually love these kinds of details in the scriptures. It humanizes Jesus. He's had a big morning making a whip. He's hungry. He's looking for food. Now, it's wrong to think, though, in this situation, Jesus just got hangry. The tree let him down. He was angry. He cursed it. End of story. There's, There's more to it going on here. As with the whip, Jesus' actions are premeditated. They're they're calculated. As with the donkey's cult, prophetic theater was Jesus' playbook. And so here with this tree, Jesus capitalizes on his misfortune by enacting a parable, a prophetic action that makes a statement stronger than words. Now, we might think that the tree here is being dealt a pretty harsh hands, but there is a key detail to the story. It may not have been the season for figs, we're told, But we're told that the tree was in leaf. That from a distance, the foliage cover implied that there should be early figs. The tree was an early bloomer. Now, at a distance, the tree gave this appearance then of fruitfulness. Jesus heads over, he's searching for small figs. But when he gets there, when he inspects the tree, just like he inspected Jerusalem, he finds it barren. It's a fraud. It's fruitless. Now, what could be seen at a distance actually was all just for show. And up close, under Jesus' careful gaze, it was exposed for what it truly was. And against this tree, which should have borne fruit, that's when Jesus brings judgment. He curses the fig. And miraculously, within hours, it is withered and dead. Now, on the face of it, the story still seems confusing to us, but for the disciples, those who grew up with a deep knowledge of the Old Testament, their minds would have begun to light up with all of the language of the prophets. The fig tree was Israel. Do that. 
The fig tree was... Israel. Nice. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel's calling had been to be a blessing to the nations. Their task was to illuminate the way back to God as a light to the Gentiles. And during the times of the prophets, horticulture had become the dominant metaphor. And the time at different places had come for Israel to bear a fruitfulness that would bless the world. Prophets like Micah, Jeremiah, and Hosea, they all commented how God came to Israel as his vineyard in search of early figs, a sign of their faithfulness, only to find that they had none. They were barren, leaving the world spiritually hungry. That despite the appearances of religiosity, their idolatry led to being cursed and in exile. You see, the fig tree in the gospel was Israel. The warning was given that fruitlessness leads to judgment. But as always with God, there was hope. With God, there is always hope. And the scriptures began to speak this language of hope, where the prophets spoke of God's promise to one day replant Israel after exile, so that again, she could bear healthy figs. You'll see it in Ezekiel, in Joel, in Amos, in Zechariah. This is not uncommon language. The disciples would have been thinking, now was that moment where God had come again to inspect Israel for figs. Jesus the king had come to Jerusalem in search of fruit, but what did he find on day one? There was a city that from a distance welcomed him with fanfare. There were leaves on the tree from afar. But as he came to the very heart of Jerusalem to inspect their inner life, their faith was a facade. There was no fruit to be found. Jerusalem's leaders who were meant to make God's house sacred They didn't recognize his authority. They were exposed as frauds. They tried to take possession of the land for their own sake. Huge on religious trappings. Jesus would call them whitewashed tombs, renovated on the outside, when inwardly they were nothing more than a moral and spiritual corpse. But Jesus knew the truth, and he came in judgment. Now, if you're new to Christianity, please don't get the right idea here. Oh, the wrong idea, sorry. Jesus doesn't have glee when he brings judgment. As he looks over an unbelieving Jerusalem, we're told in another gospel that he weeps. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you unto me as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not come. It's one of two times in the gospels where Jesus weeps. Jesus does not delight to bring judgment. Their unbelief, their fruitlessness, it breaks his heart. He calls out. He begs, he beckons, but they would not listen. And this is the challenge to us. Fruitlessness leads to judgment. You see, whether you've grown up in church, whether you're exploring the Christian faith, you need to know that there is no such thing as a fruitless Christian. One of the most common things that I'm asked is, how do I know if I'm saved? How do I know if I really belong to God? Well, from the teaching of Jesus, Matthew 3 verse 8, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Or from his Sermon on the Mount, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. 
or from his discourse to the disciples on the night before his crucifixion. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withered. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. This is a scary reality, but it is a mega theme of Jesus' teaching. That there is no such thing as a fruitless Christian. So what is this fruit then that Jesus is talking about? What does he expect to find on our lives when he returns? And it's strange, right? Because the disciples begin to ask about this withered tree. Jesus starts talking about prayer. Like, that's a big subject change. Why are you shifting here, Jesus? Because God's expectation that his covenant people would bear fruit, it didn't wither on that road that day between Bethany and Jerusalem. Far from it. Our maker's mandate, Christ's commission to bear spiritual fruit, it only intensified. Scores of passages across the New Testament make this point. And though they didn't understand it in that moment, the disciples were about to take on the shepherding role. They were going to be the ones that were God's means to transform Israel. They would be the ones to kindle their torches by proximity to Jesus as the light of the world. They would be God's instruments to extend salvation to all people with believers from every tribe and tongue gathered into a new family in Christ. They would be the ones to change the world. But how are the disciples going to do it? How will they succeed where Israel before them had failed? How could they produce fruit? Well, Jesus begins to talk about faith. He begins to talk about proximity to the Lord. He pivots to this idea of prayer, and he said that faith has the power to transform the landscape. That faith is the means by which God changes us and through us changes the world. That salvation comes to us through faith. A response to the bigness of God. A response to the goodness of God. A response to the gospel of God. See, the problem of Israel's story is that they kept taking their eyes off God and onto themselves. They began to live a counterfeit life of external religion. All leaf, all show but nothing real, no fruit. Jesus is instructing his disciples here that what was missing in their story was faith. The very lifeblood of a Christian, the only means of our salvation, because it is faith in Christ, the door through which God helps us be faithful. He changes our hearts, changes our desires, removes a heart of stone, gives us a heart of flesh. He infuses us with his life and his loves. And it's this by which Jesus' power will spread out to change the world. Jesus is saying they may have believed about God, but Israel's leaders were not believing in God. Their faith was in the wrong place. Do you believe in Jesus? That's the real challenge of this text. That if he is the king that he claimed to be, if he fulfilled the prophecy, if he proved himself, if he really is our maker and our savior, do you believe in Jesus? Not believing about him, certain theological truths, but putting your trust 
in him? Do you believe him when he says that apart from me, you can do nothing? Do you believe him when he says that the thief comes to steal, kill and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and have it in abundance? Do you believe him when he says that he loves you, that his path is the way to life and that the means by which we show our love to him is through obedience? Do you believe that Jesus is more for your joy than you are? That he's more for your ultimate good than you are? That he's working for your holiness? That he's working for your ultimate happiness? If you believe Jesus, then the question of obedience, that's the great revealer of whether or not we really believe him. Jesus will say, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, but will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Did we not perform miracles or in your name do many things? He will say, depart from me. I never knew you. What's decisive is whether or not the will of his father is done by us. Jesus said, faith ushers forward in faithfulness. The real hope of this passage is that as Jesus is turning his disciples, he wants to change the world. He wants this gospel message to go out to all corners. But he needs his disciples to know that that's not going to be done by them, by nothing that they achieve, by nothing that they're capable within themselves. That it's by faith in him. Believe in him and live accordingly. The great joy for the disciples is that having seen judgment come upon Israel, life was ushered out through the gospel. Jesus withered up and died for us. The very judgment that was brought upon Israel, he himself received. Why? So that his life, his fruitfulness, could be borne out by all who believe in him. The fig tree was Israel's story. It's not meant to be the story of the church. The church is not meant to look good on the outside, but inwardly bear no fruit. That is the great temptation. That on the outside, we can have the appearance of following Jesus. When if he comes to inspect what's on the inside, there is no faith. That our eyes are on ourselves and not on him. One of the grand gifts of being the family of God, is that we get to come and be reminded of God's word. That although our hearts are prone to wander, we have this opportunity to come afresh and put our hope, our faith in Jesus. Knowing that we move forward by going back. That we bear fruit only by faith in him. And you're invited to put your faith in him this morning. Jesus, the king, the king of Jerusalem, the king of all creation, the one who has the right to tell you what to do. But the reason why you would want to put your faith in him is because his purposes and his plans for us, his fruitfulness is something we should want for ourselves. His ways are right. His ways are good. His ways are true. So you're invited this morning to come clean about what's going on in here. 
where you really are, what you're really looking at, where you're really hoping it, and put your faith afresh in Jesus. Let's bow our heads in prayer. God, our Father, you see us to the depths. That by your word, we're cut to the heart. It is living and active to divide soul and spirit, joints and marrow, judging the very thoughts and attitudes of who we are. And that all is laid bare before you, with whom we have to give an account. Lord, help us not to be like those religious leaders who are more concerned with their own standing than with standing on your truth. Who looked good on the outside, but inwardly were faithless and fruitless. Who had so much and yet had nothing because they didn't have you. Help us to open up about where we are in this story. To let your light shine to the very center of who we are. To expose all that is hidden in darkness. And help us to put our hope not in ourselves, not in this life, not in our own ability. Let us be honest now in this moment as we bring confession before you. Would you convict us of sin? And would you lead us to put our faith in the Savior? The one through whose power, whose resurrection power, this world can be changed. And as we look to you, as our eyes are set on the cross and the empty grave, as we celebrate the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus, Lord, would you help us by your grace to bear fruit in keeping with repentance? As we abide in you, would you change us to be more like your son? As we go out into the world, would you help us be a light to the nations, to light up the way to God, to point people to Jesus. Lord, in light of the fact that there is a coming judgment, let us not pretend like we can hide. But as you come to walk amongst the church now, as the one who walks amongst the seven lampstands, the one who comes first to your house, to the heart of your temple, to your people. Would you help us to step into the light as he is in the light, to have fellowship with one another. The blood of Jesus Christ would cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church located in North Lakes. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others, but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.